Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Back when I thought about starting this podcast, I intended to spend the first year doing reviews on things that weren't particularly controversial. And then I went and chucked that out the window by doing my first episode on cannabinoids. So we're going to continue that approach and address some difficult topics head on. This will be the first in a series on firearm violence and how to reframe our thinking about this issue, how to find our place in this topic as medical providers, and with the idea that all of this is about harm reduction and not tribalism. I have three world-class experts with me today, and we'll start by having them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Steve Hargarden. I'm professor and chair of emergency medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I direct the Comprehensive Injury Center here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I've been studying and researching injuries for many years, and in particular, firearm and non-firearm related injuries over the past several decades. My name is Megan Ranney. I am an associate professor of emergency medicine at Elpert Medical School, Brown University. I have been a violence prevention researcher for about a decade now. I'm also past chair of ASEP's trauma and injury prevention section and have worked extensively with ASEP and other national organizations to help promote a common sense approach to firearm injury prevention. And hi, I'm Pat Carter. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine here at the University of Michigan Medical School. And I'm also the assistant director of the U of M Injury Prevention Center. And I've done research on firearm and firearm-related injury prevention for the past eight years or so. So the reason we got this all together to talk today is to start addressing how we as emergency physicians uh, or as a medical community can think about firearm injuries and, and violent injuries, what data is out there regarding these, as well as if there are any known preventative measures or interventions that have been studied and actually work. So Steve, I know that we have spoken in the past uh, about your approach and thinking that physicians should approach this as a biopsych a social disease, the same way we have looked at other injury-related diseases. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I think it's uh, helpful because I think as physicians, we are, are charged with, and that's our training, is to uh, reduce the burden of diseases across a spectrum of ages and across a spectrum of agents that cause disease. And biological injury is a good example. HIV is a biological injury. It's caused by a virus. And we attack the virus. We attack the systems that react to the virus. We um, adjust the behaviors of high-risk individuals. So this framing of what we do as a disease is extremely helpful to prioritize and to understand multiple approaches. And in this case, uh, the gun violence uh, challenge and burden is that it's a complex biopsychosocial disease. The biology is what we all see as emergency physicians, as orthopedists, where there's fractures, there's, there's ruptures of organ systems, there's exsanguination, there's organ failure and death. That's the biology. It's complex with pre-existing and other subsequent psychological and social issues that combine to make this very, very challenging and very complex. But in that same light, by then recognizing and framing it that way, we can look at prevention strategies that reduce the likelihood of the release of the energy, the management of the, of the wounds after the energy has been uh, impacted on the individual. And you start to have a, a complex system of prevention strategies that are primary, secondary, and tertiary in nature that it helps 
all of us, both physicians and other sectors of civil society, able to research and develop reasonable, thoughtful strategies to reduce the burden of, of this biopsychosocial disease in our communities. So that's, a, I think, a brief overview of the way I uh, see this and the benefits uh, that I think comes with pulling in physicians to this conversation. I have to say, Steve, I really love that approach. And it's something that I know all three of us on the call have frequently talked about. There's become this false divide in society recently where people think about firearm injury as somehow being inherently different from any other type of disease or injury, when in reality, Firearm injury is just another injury mechanism, right? And we know how to decrease injury and death from lots of other causes of injury, like pools or unintentional poisonings or the example that most of us use a lot, which is car crashes. And the only real difference here is that we've basically been blocked from doing that sort of scientific investigation for the past two, three decades. We have done this successfully for cars. I think cars is a great analogy where we have um, intervened at all points in the public health system and in structural engineering of the vehicle and the roads of protective mechanisms for people in cars, as well as how we treat these injuries from a pre-hospital standpoint to how we treat them in the hospital and how we treat the sequelae of them that occur after uh, the patient's hospitalization. And we've done all of this without banning cars and without taking cars away from people. We've really made them safer and, and made people's interactions safer so that we, we decrease their risk for injuries. So Megan, you brought up that we have really been prevented from doing equivalent research in this area. Can you talk about the history of that sort of why is that the case? Absolutely. That's a great question, Jason. So in 1996, after some seminal research done by actually emergency physicians, um, something called the Dickey Amendment was passed, which stated that none of the funds for injury prevention and control at the CDC could be used to advocate or promote gun control. At the same time that this amendment was passed, CDC basically had the same amount of money taken out of its budget as it had previously spent to do firearm injury prevention. Since that time, there have been no appropriations to the CDC directly to do firearm injury prevention research. Now, CDC does research on everything, right? Going from Zika virus to influenza to car crashes, suicide prevention, and opioid overdoses. And doing research on prevention of injury from guns is the one thing that it has not been funded to do since 1996. Now, in the mid-2000s, a similar prohibition was put in place or a similar restriction was put in place for NIH. In 2013, after Newtown, Obama instruct this, the CDC and NIH to again begin doing research. Um, and in fact, NIH put out a specific uh, request for proposals um, around uh, decreasing morbidity and mortality from firearm injuries. Unfortunately, that request expired at the end of December of 2016 and has not been renewed. So if you actually look at the number of NIH grants around firearm injury, there are currently around 13 grants um, that directly relate to firearm injury versus over 300 that relate to opioids. Another very sad statistic is that the burden of death from firearms is about the same as from sepsis. The funding for firearm injury research from the federal government is only 0.7% of that for sepsis research. I think it's also important to point out that after those restrictions went in place, publications on firearm 
and firearm-related injury decreased significantly. I think about 64% uh, was what one study showed. So we've had a significant impact on the science that's come out around this issue just with these two restrictions that have been put in place. So can we get in to a little bit on what research is actually out there for any sort of intervention or, or programs? Or maybe I know that all three of you are involved in a current grant that, that is looking at something in this area. As Megan discussed, after Newtown, there was a, a number of requests for applications that came out from the NIH around doing research related to firearms. And we brought together a large group of researchers from around the country, two of which are on this phone call now, who do research related to or in the area of firearms and put together a proposal to help try and jumpstart the field of research specifically around the prevention of uh, pediatric or child and teenager related firearm injuries. And so that, that grant was funded and is specifically looking at trying to jumpstart the field again, understand what research is out there, what the research agenda for studying firearm injuries and preventing firearm injuries among children looks like, and then to start doing some of the crucial pilot work that's needed to help inform the larger studies that we would need to do in the future to work on preventing firearm injuries. I was just going to mention the, um, the IOM report that was uh, commissioned several years ago, outlined a broad research agenda that to Megan's earlier comment about the Obama administration setting aside $10 million or recommending $10 million to fund needed research that was never allocated by Congress. But in that IOM report, there's a broad set of, of research uh, challenges and suggestions that were put forth in also uh, Megan and colleagues outlined a whole research agenda for emergency medicine. So there's no shortage of questions to be asked and hypotheses to be tested. Megan, do you want to comment on that research agenda? So a couple of years ago, ASAP put together a special group to look at what types of research needed to be done around firearm injury. And both Steve and Pat were among the members of that group. Our challenge was not identifying questions that needed to be asked, but rather identifying questions that had already been answered, right? We have some preliminary data in a lot of areas that are very relevant to emergency physicians around things like the fact that we can reduce fights among youth who come into the ED with an acute assault-related injury. But we're not 100% sure if those types of interventions reduce firearm injury. We have some preliminary data suggesting that we may be able to change mental health outcomes among at-risk youth and adults who come into the ED, but we're not sure if that changes rates of suicide. We're not sure how best to prevent PTSD after a firearm injury. We're not sure what the best protocol is for helping families to recover after a loved one has been a victim of either homicide or suicide by a firearm. The list of questions that we came up with is really staggering and shows how much we have yet to do. And I can link to that in the show notes for all the listeners. Maybe we should talk to start about what we know as far as risk factors for being involved in some sort of firearm violence. And Pat, I think maybe I would like to ask you, I know that there was a paper uh, that got put out, which included something called the safety score, which looked at the odds ratio for future firearm violence. Sure. Yeah. So that work specifically focused on intentional firearm-related injury occurring among youth and in youth settings. And essentially, we did a, a look at a number of the data sets that we have used to study kids in, uh, in high-risk neighborhoods who are coming into the emergency department with violent injuries and took a look at what factors might predict future involvement in firearm violence. And we developed something called the safety score, which has uh, five factors essentially associated with it. One is because the initial study that was 
done involved um, drug using youth. Um, uh, youth. So the entry criteria for screening is is that they have a history of uh, recent drug use. And then there were four other factors that we found to be significant factors that could be asked about in an emergency setting to help predict whether or not uh, a teenager or youth was going to be involved in some type of fire violence in the future. And one was around how often um, uh, in the past six months they've gotten into a serious physical fight with somebody, how many of their friends carried a weapon, including knives, razors, guns, um, and then how many uh, times in the past six months have they been exposed to firearm violence within their neighborhood? So they've heard gunshots um, being fired in their neighborhood. And then also how many times in the past six months has somebody threatened them with a firearm? And those um, five questions really did um, did predict uh, with pretty high likelihood uh, uh, youth being involved in either being the aggressor in a firearm event, being the victim in a firearm event, or ending up in the emergency department with a firearm-related injury or ending up um, uh, passing away from a firearm injury. And so the idea is that that type of research can help us to determine which um, kids come into the emergency department that we can do interventions with to help try and limit their their future risk for for firearm injury. So th- there are a couple of other big things too. So I think that study is hugely important in terms of assault-related firearm injury, but actually two-thirds of firearm deaths in this country are suicide. And of the homicide deaths, a large portion of them are due to domestic violence. So there are two other really important groups for us to consider that are at high risk for firearm injury and death. And one is groups who endorse um, severe depression or suicidal ideation, who you would be worried about potentially taking their own life. Um, For those groups, it's really important to talk about firearm access because 90% of suicide attempts with a gun are fatal versus only 10% of suicide attempts with another means. And we know that if we can stop someone from dying in their initial suicide attempt, they're unlikely to try again. So having that discussion around firearm access in cases of suicidality is really critical. The other group is patients who are a victim of dating violence or domestic violence. One of the key items in the danger assessment, which some of the listeners may have heard of, it's this standard assessment for the likelihood of lethality in domestic violence. One of the standard items in that is whether or not the partner, the perpetrator, has a weapon. And we know that if the partner has a weapon, particularly a firearm, that increases the victim's risk of death from domestic violence by, depending on the study, tens to dozens of times. Um, So those are two additional huge risk factors that we should be aware of. I, I think I would add to that that, um, as Megan sort of said, I think firearm access across the board crosses all types of these injuries. So we know that the presence of a firearm in the home increases the risk for both homicide, intimate partner homicide, risk for suicide, even in the absence of a prior psychiatric diagnosis. And so asking about firearm access is a crucial, crucial component of all types of injuries that uh, relate to firearms. Are we as physicians actually allowed to ask about that? We, we absolutely are. Now, there was, a, there was this um, law in Florida that's since been overturned that was generally talked about as a gag law um, that was put into place in response to a couple of sensationalized cases of pediatricians asking patients' families about 
firearm ownership. Even in Florida, even under that law, which was rightly declared unconstitutional, it was still legal to ask patients about firearm access when you were worried about them. So in those high-risk situations that Pat and I just discussed, even under that law, which has since been overturned, it was okay to ask. Now, so currently in the U.S., there are no laws that restrict or ban questions around firearm access, and they shouldn't because just as we ask patients about whether or not they've worn a seatbelt, whether or not they drink to excess, just as we ask patients about safe sex practices, similarly, questions around firearm access can be a really critical part of our risk stratification when we talk to them. Coming to, um, as we've been talking, is that if you have a certain product in the home and you have a despondent youth who potentially has access to it, you are changing risk factors from suicidal ideation to the impulsive act of deciding to do something, grabbing a means, a gun, and it's easily discharged relative to other means. And so the, the, the need to primary prevent this is far greater than the secondary prevention of an opioid overdose where there may be minutes to maybe a couple of hours where you can intervene on a drug overdose or a Tylenol overdose in, in terms of a non-opioid uh, means. So it is critically important to prevent the release of the energy because once it's done in suicides, as Megan alluded to, it's got the highest case fatality ratio of any means that is being used. So it is of critical um, a critical strategy to reduce access to lethal means, particularly in impulsive youth, where the transition of suicidal ideation to acting on it could be minutes to an hour. And I would add to that that the studies that have been done in this area have, that have looked at this have shown clearly that the a youth moves from contemplation to action within a very short period of time. And among those who survive an attempted suicide, they, they talk about planning in the majority of these cases for less than five minutes. So the presence of the firearm and the high case fatality rate, along with that impulsivity, really is the, the lethal mix in, in the equation. And if and if the firearm was uh, access was restricted to to the point where the child or youth couldn't get couldn't get access to it, they either would go on to potentially attempt with a less lethal means that we have more time to act on, or potentially would would have access to a variety of other other services that could help them work through that crisis moment without without reaching for the firearm. So I have a two part follow up question. Then, do any of you have a standardized way that you approach asking these questions? Do you think we should be screening everybody for potential possession of firearm, or or only those who are at risk? And then the second one is: once you know that there is uh, access to a firearm, what do you do? Who can you tell? And, and is there some way to intervene there? So let me just clarify really quickly, Jason. You're talking about in the emergency department or in general? You know, I think we are addressing this specifically from the emergency department. But if there are differences between in general, say, in a clinic and in the emergency department, I think it's worth bringing that up. I'm going to answer first from the perspective of emergency providers, um, physicians, and other healthcare professionals working in the emergency department. Um, and then I'll comment a little about some differences in other care settings. So for emergency physicians, I do not think it's appropriate for us to universally screen for firearm access. For the vast majority of patients, it really isn't relevant. I think it's incredibly important for us to screen for patients who, as we've discussed, are high risk. So people who have 
are victims of domestic violence, people who disclose suicidal ideation, people who have been in a physical fight. Now, some of those risk factors may not be immediately apparent to us, right? But there's an increasing move towards a universal suicide screen. The reason why I think this is important is because when you ask the question about firearm access, I couch it the same way that I would couch any other potentially sensitive question. So just as when I'm asking about sexual history, I say, so do you have sex with men, women, or both, right? Similarly for firearms, when I'm talking to a patient about suicidality, right, I have my standard questions that I go through. Uh, have you ever tried to hurt yourself before? Do you have a plan? Would you own or have access to a gun? And so the questions just kind of flow straight through. Similarly, if I'm talking to a patient who's disclosed to me that she's been a victim of domestic violence, I ask her about what's happened. I ask her, do you have children at home? Have the children ever been hit or hurt by your partner? Does your partner have access to a gun? And by asking the question, in those ways, it normalizes it and makes them much more comfortable with sharing their answer. Now, the caveat that I'll place um, when I say that I don't think that universal screening is appropriate in the emergency department. There are two things. The first is we have no studies backing up my techniques, right? And Steve and Pat may have very different approaches than I do. We're doing this based on expert opinion, not based on data. The other thing is, is that there may be some settings in which it may be appropriate to universally screen. So for instance, if I were a psychiatrist, maybe it's appropriate for me to ask my patients at every visit. I don't know the answer there. No one does. And that's one of the areas that we need research. In terms of what to do when they do disclose firearm access, if they are a high-risk patient, it really depends on the specific situation, and it really depends a lot also on your local or state laws. So in some states, for instance, if a person has been a victim of domestic violence and their partner has access to a firearm, in some states, if they have a restraining order, you can call the police and the police actually are empowered to temporarily restrict the perpetrator's access to firearms. In other states, that's not possible. In some states, the only safe place you can store a gun outside of your house is at a pawn shop. In some states, you can temporarily store a firearm with a friend or family member or at a gun shop. So there's really a lot of local variability to what um, the correct answer is. Think about how much has changed with our views of domestic violence in the emergency department and the screening. In 1989, when I joined the faculty, a resident dutifully reported the injuries to this woman. Facial injuries, x-rays reported as negative and was discharging the patient. And I said, that's great. Well, what happened? And the resident said, I don't want to know. You think about the fact that back then, domestic violence was beginning to be understood, but there was no mechanism to do anything about it. And so if we're going to be asking good questions like Megan summarized, we have to have some plans about what are we going to do when we do have that situation where there's a gun in the home and we need to have it removed and asking the family members to help or follow some of the advice that, again, Megan outlined. So this is an important element of understanding the roles of physicians in this acute care setting and what we can and should be doing, as opposed to the framing of questions in a you know, setting in a pediatrician's office where they're generally looking at injury reductions. I think asking about products in the home and framing it in a non-judgmental way helps family members make better decisions about their homes with kids and, and young adults. So the framing of it is the way Megan outlined it is a great way for us in the acute care setting. The non-acute care setting, the pediatrician's office, the family medicine office, as a more general tone, and in a real reasonable way of asking questions about risk. And then once you ask about it, are guns in the home, are they properly secured? 
Are they properly stored or consideration for removing it when there's a despondent adolescent in the home? So there's a broad way to, to address this across a spectrum of healthcare settings. And I would just add to that that this is where the research, the need for research comes in. What is the best method of screening? Who should we screen? Should we screen everybody? Should we screen some people? Should we ask certain questions? How should we ask the question? What do we do with that information? What are the most effective interventions that we should apply in those settings? Those are all key research questions that we think we have some signal on what maybe is the right thing to do, but we need to do large-scale studies to figure out and to determine. Well, we haven't uh, gone into what I would argue is some discussion about the actual product itself and its, and its design features. Um, and I think that it's a, a real important area for, while we may not be directly uh, dealing with this in terms of our patient care, as physicians have in other product uh, redesign advocacy, can be playing a very important role in this. In terms of the suicide issue, we did a study that we did not get published where we looked at uh, suicide amongst 20 to 24 year olds compared to older adults over 75. Of those that were firearm related suicides, we determined whose gun was it. And for the 20 to 24 year old, 40% of the time it was somebody else's gun. And so if we think about product design and the benefits of product design that is geared towards safety, we open up a whole new area of research and a pathway that would suggest that we would have fewer deaths because they can't access lethal means because they can't access their dad's gun and they don't have anything else to grab at home versus homicides where somebody is using somebody else's gun to perpetrate a crime. So personalized guns, guns that only can be used by the authorized user, it is, a, is an example of this technology opportunity that is just right and ready to be placed in the marketplace uh, alongside other strategies to reduce access to lethal means. It has been advanced in a variety of uh, settings, and most recently with a company in Germany, Armatex, whose current financial state I actually don't know. I've heard both that they are either near bankruptcy or there's some financial challenges, but I've held the 22 caliber pistol that they've manufactured, and it's impressive. There's another company in Pennsylvania that claims to be close to this technology, and yet you think about the research, the research into this uh, area is also challenging to really spur on the investigation of what has largely been a mechanical product that hasn't changed much since the 1800s. One of the resistance has been that this is a mandate or this is some sort of a requirement for gun owners to, to have. And I think the New Jersey law was or had been a had really been a dampening effect on this more than a positive development. Can you uh, briefly review that New Jersey law that you just mentioned? Well, the New Jersey law was passed, I believe, in the early 2000s, where the statement was made that when a personalized gun is developed, that within three years, it will be required to be sold in New Jersey. All of us may recall the firearms dealer who was trying to uh, sell a uh, personalized gun and that he received a significant backlash partly related to the fact that then they thought the New Jersey law would be put into effect. So um, I think there's been that uh, challenge uh, to uh, repeal that law so that 
it's a market opportunity for gun manufacturers rather than being viewed as a mandate. And I think similar to how car safety mechanisms were marketed, the idea that a family uh, with young children would want to make sure that their firearm, if they own one, is stored safely and is not able to be accessed by their kid can be a really powerful marketing tool uh, in the same way that car companies were initially resistant to introducing safety measures in vehicles, uh, like for example, seatbelts. But over time, it became popular to advertise around the concept of having the safest car on the, on the road. This this always makes me interested in how this happens. I very clearly remember the widely passed around belief when I was in middle school that you were actually safer in a car without a seatbelt. And like that, that was something that almost everybody that I knew thought to be true. I wanted to go back just briefly to a couple of uh, risk factor things, um, if you all don't mind, of sort of violently injured youth. How many of them report owning or carrying a gun in the preceding six months? What percentage of them report some sort of substance abuse being related to the violence as well as Pat you had done one on the on the motivation and the daily events that led up to a, a violent event so again, this work is focused mostly around youth who are involved in intentional related firearm violence. But what we see is among these kids who come into the emergency department with a violent injury, about a quarter of them report having owned or carried a firearm within the past six months. And about 80% of those firearms are acquired through illegal means. And when we talk to kids about what their motivation is for owning or carrying a firearm, it really is around protecting themselves or establishing respect within their peer groups that they are somebody who can protect themselves because they're carrying a firearm and they know that they're at risk, especially if they're involved within the illegal drug trade or within the sale of drugs or alcohol within, within their peer group for potential violence. And so really addressing some of those motivational issues and kind of reframing the issues around being able to protect yourself within your community are really kind of key when we, when we look at this problem, specifically among urban youth who are involved in violence. Uh, we did look a, a little bit also at motivations underlying firearm events and how they were unique in comparison to non firearm-related violence in urban settings. And one of the things we found is that firearm-related events are uniquely related to a higher rate of them being motivated by retaliation or establishing respect among their peer group. And it speaks to the needs for, for uh, the focus of interventions in, in different areas. So, so whereas we see with other types of fighting, a lot of them are impulsive fighting that extends from some verbal disagreement to, to an altercation that involves fist fighting. What we're seeing with the firearm violence is it tends to be more planned in nature rather than uh, as reactive in nature. And so that speaks to the need to address both proactive types of aggression as well as reactive types of aggression within interventions that are done in emergency settings. We have an intervention here that we've done with kids called the Safer Teens Intervention, which is really focused kind of upstream among kids who are involved in initial fights and some level of alcohol or substance use and, and shown that we can be effective at decreasing future violence outcomes. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about firearm injury prevention, people automatically go to one side of the political debate or the other, that they say it's all about the guns or it has nothing to do with the guns. And what I would hope out of this podcast that our listeners can take from it is that it's neither. So guns certainly play a role. Access to a gun increases your risk of death in that moment of crisis, whether it's suicide, homicide, domestic violence. And there's a ton that we can do knowing that the United States has a very different political climate and a very different culture around gun ownership than any other country in the world. 
the fact that there are guns out there does not mean that we can't reduce the number of injuries. And going back to that car analogy and the great statement that Pat made earlier, just as we have reduced the rate of motor vehicle-related injuries and deaths dramatically, despite an increasing number of cars on the road, similarly, I, and I know Pat and Steve agree with me on this, strongly believe and have evidence to demonstrate that we can reduce the rate of firearm injury and death without drastic legislative changes. I would just echo what Megan said. I mean, I think that's a crucial how we can advance that knowledge without just focusing solely on the firearm. I think you both know that I was not making something exclusive, but rather to state that attention deservedly does belong in all facets, all areas that we need to have a full court, a full research effort that looks at uh, gun design just as much as we look at behavioral issues. So, yes, I agree completely that it's not just one area versus the other. But I do think that one of the mythological ways in which it has been framed, not scientifically, is the phrase or is the mantra, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And I think the behavioral issues are extremely important, but it's the kinetic energy. It's the bullet. So it deserves to be reframed again, just like we did with cars and car crashes, where we benefited from having a broad approach that included environmental uh, interactions and and interventions that made uh, the environment safer. And we've had not had a chance to talk about that in this discussion, but certainly that also has standalone um, uh, benefits in reducing the burden of gun violence. So in the public health approach, which I think we all grew up with, that's where the power of that approach is. It's it's addressing this complex disease in multiple sectors. It's a great point, Steve. I'm going to add on actually a, a little analogy or story um, that I first heard from you, Steve. So when I was an intern, just a couple of years back, right? Um, but when I was an intern, Steve came and gave grand rounds here at Brown, and he told a story that is apocryphal in public health, but which I had never heard at that point. And it was the story of people going over a waterfall in a canoe, falling out of the canoe and drowning. And an entire village, an entire town came to try to pull people out of the water at the base of the waterfall. But people kept going over the waterfall in the canoes, falling out of the canoes and drowning, despite the best efforts of the villagers. Finally, someone said, why don't we go above the waterfall and put a bridge in place and stop the canoes from going over in the first place? And I think of that as a lot of our mission. We as emergency physicians are experts at stopping the bleeding once it's happened. If anyone ever brings in a firearm injury victim to us, if they make it so far as coming to our emergency department, we have every technique in the world to try to save that life. But what we're talking about here is about trying to stop that canoe from going over the waterfall or trying to stop that firearm injury from happening in the first place, right? And it's eminently possible. And I would add, I think it's an equally important part of our role as emergency physicians, one that we maybe don't always recognize as much, but I think is crucially important. Well, again, in the history of uh, injury prevention, as uh, uh, Megan was summarizing, there's been two groups that have made the big difference in uh, paradigm shifts, angry moms and pediatricians. And the pediatric community is a key constituency for injury prevention, and their role in this area is extremely important to think about. But I wanted to give you that additional historical note. Angry moms and pediatricians. 
maybe recently angry teenagers, man. Those kids from Florida are just on fire. Uh, the only other thing I would maybe add is we did a number of videos a few years ago that were around how to ask and counsel around firearm safety, specifically among children. And it was specifically geared towards pediatricians, but it may be of some value to link to it. And that's where we're going to leave it. I will link to those videos that Pat mentioned right there at the end at littlebigmed.com, as well as in the specific notes for this episode. It was a pretty heavy episode, and we're going to have several more that come out over the following weeks regarding how some other countries have addressed this issue, where firearm violence fits into the discussion regarding domestic violence and suicide, as well as the place of pediatrics in this entire topic. All of those discussions are with an emphasis on how do we advance this conversation to reduce harm for our patients and how do we avoid the rhetoric and tribalism that has plagued this issue for so long. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review to help others find this podcast. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 